the talk this morning is continuing our our theme of Anicca. And I'll just review slightly for some of you who may not have been here for other uh, talks um, on this topic. So Anicca means impermanence in Pali. It's one of the three characteristics that the Buddha identified as being a quality of all conditioned phenomena. That is material things and non-material, including us human beings. We are impermanent. All things are impermanent. This is the truth of the way things are. It's so obvious. Why did the Buddha stress the importance of looking for this quality in our experience, as well as the other two characteristics of dukkha and anatta. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to get my talk up here. Just a minute. There it is. Okay. Let's see. Okay. I think that the three characteristics are actually three aspects of one thing. It's very hard to talk about one of them without talking about the other. They overlap. One meaning of dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. And why is it unsatisfactory? Because of impermanence. There's no solid fixed place to settle. There's always the underlying sense of movement on to something else. We do chores to maintain things like our health. Every day we eat, bathe, brush our teeth, and the next day we have to do it all over again. We have our possessions to maintain in good order, our property to maintain, but things fall apart and need to be cleaned, straightened up, or repaired. Things get used up and need to be replenished. This is life. There's the Zen saying, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. This example is at a very basic level that we all have experience with. To keep our life at a level of okayness, we need to do the chores to pay someone or pay someone else to do them. And we need to make sure we pay the bills as well. Or at some point, things will fall apart, to quote Pema Chodron. There's another level of falling apart that I'm going to talk about today, and it's the one at the heart of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths and the wisdom in the three characteristics. This falling apart started the Buddha on his going forth path as a monk. Most of us would have held tightly to the world the Buddha was born into. When he described it in the suttas, he said, All my garments and sandalwood came from Varanasi. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. I was entertained in the rainy season, palace by minstrels, and on and on he went. 
it was a world that did a pretty good job of surrounding the Buddha with comfort, safety, and pleasure. He was protected for his first 29 years from the effects of changing conditions of the worldly winds. It might have felt like a permanent pleasant. Yet when he finally ventured outside his palaces, his containers of pleasantness and saw evidence that there was another version of reality, he responded in a way that held the seeds of the Dharma he would begin teaching six years later. He saw the three messengers, the sick man, the old man, and the corpse, and they were all described in graphic detail in the suttas. And he was aware that his first reaction to seeing them was to turn away. He was horrified. He was disgusted. He was humiliated. And he realized that he had been oblivious to the fact that he too was subject to aging, illness, and death. Right away, he realized that his first reaction of resistance in the form of fear and denial to the suffering he saw would not be fitting for him. I think this is an important point. It was like a first awakening. In last Monday night's talk at Sims, Tawari talked about how the Buddha offers us a middle way of relating to pleasure and pain. She said that the Buddha points to the truth that dukkha is resistance to what is arising in the moment. Whatever pain or difficulty arises in the moment will cease if we let go of the resistance to it, because everything is changing. It seems like our resistance works to solidify and get us entangled and stuck in unpleasant and challenging situations. We're afraid and our fear can turn to panic or we don't want to face the truth so we don't see it and become numb and confused. The wisdom of Anicca reminds me of what Pema Chodron said in her book, When Things Fall Apart. Thinking that we can find some lasting pleasure and avoid pain is called samsara, a hopeless cycle that goes round and round endlessly and causes us to suffer greatly. The first noble truth points out that suffering is inevitable as long as we believe that things last, that they don't disintegrate, that they can be counted on to satisfy our hunger for security, for some kind of familiar resting place. It's our way of perceiving that is the problem. Our abstract thinking mind abstracts, which means that it removes and extracts and considers something separately from something else. Our mind can separate experience into concepts which help us perceive things as separate, as solid, as permanent, manipulable and controllable. And this helps us function in an ordered world, which has produced a lot of scientific and industrial achievements. We can get our ducks in a row it seems like, but really all things are in process and not separate. They are not separate ducks in a row. It's a delusion. Ajahn Suchito says that the problem is that perceptions are subject to bias and one's mind becomes a very full library of interpretations and signs, so full that we don't see things afresh as they really are. 
And this kind of harkens back from the 12 links of dependent origination and name and form, which is how ignorance conditions our experience. If some of you remember that uh, we talked about a couple of years ago. Ajahn Suchita says, full liberation comes with breaking through the compulsive link between name and form. This breaking through comes with vipassana, with insight. And he goes on to say that insight focuses on the three characteristics of all conditioned phenomena. That phenomena are subject to change, phenomena are unsatisfactory, and phenomena do not occur. Um, it does not occur to, or that's right, phenomena do not occur to or create a person. So phenomena don't happen to us and they don't create us. In meditation, we can witness the compulsive inner narrative that arises in light of these three characteristics. In our body, the reactive flushes and contractions rise up and bind us. And here's where they can come undone. That's what Ajahn Suchita says in his book that he just published, Breathing Like a Buddha. So what might this look like in our practice? Just as the Buddha started out with a reaction of resistance to seeing the unpleasant sight of an old person, a sick person, and a corpse, we are aware of our aversion, which is this, at the same time is a form of clinging, because we are clinging to to the state that is not aging, is not illness, is not death. When the Buddha saw that his aversion was due to his rejection of the reality that he was also subject to aging, illness, and death, he said that his, quote, intoxication with youth, his intoxication with health, and his intoxication with life entirely dropped away. In the story surrounding the Buddha, who had already lived many lives as a bodhisattva, the dropping away of the clinging and the resistance were pretty quick. For most of us, it is a much longer process. One thing that we go through over and over again, one that we go through over and over again, but it is all about relaxing into what is here, seeing what is real and true, and that life is a flowing if we act as if it is static, we will get rope burn. As Ajahn Sachita says, we have to soften and widen. And Pema continues with the idea that when things fall apart and we are on the brink of we know not what, the test for each of us is to stay on the brink and not concretize. We think the point is to pass the test or to overcome the problem. But the truth is things don't really get solved. They come together again and they fall apart again. When we think something's going to bring us pleasure, we don't know what's really going to happen. And when we think something is going to give us misery, we don't know. When I was growing up, I thought there was a plateau of happiness ahead if I played my cards right. I was a female growing up in the 50s and 60s. I went to college, but I thought my choices were to become a teacher, a nurse, a secretary, or, and not and, a housewife and mother. I would be a teacher, which I had wanted to be since second grade, and then I would get married and have some children. Secretly, I wanted to be a poet. 
Everything was couched in roles and becoming. No one ever said to prepare for everything falling apart. But even though it's not pointed out to us, the characteristics are still there and we sense them. The ego is a problem. It makes me defensive. The change is a problem. What if things get worse? This unsatisfactoriness is a problem. I worked so hard at making everything perfect that my anxiety wrecked everything. We develop habits to fix our problems, but they don't work and they have to be undone. My example is a habit pattern of preparing for the worst. I've heard it called catastrophic thinking. I've had this pattern since I was a kid in the 50s when we had air raid drills in school and had to duck under our desk to protect ourselves from the atom bomb that might drop on us. I lived under the flight path for an Air Force base, and every day jets would fly over very loudly, and each time I would think, this is it. This is the one that will drop the bomb. That would have been an absolute catastrophe, but later I realized that I had that kind of thinking about many things. And one day as an adult, um, I was thinking about, um, well, I was looking at a way I was so worried about not doing a good job on some project I was working on for work. And I realized that the narrative in my head was saying, if you don't do a good job on this, it will be the end of the world. My mind could understand that this did not make sense, of course, but the sense in my body was of dread and fear, like standing on the edge of nothingness. I couldn't change that feeling with my mind's understanding. It was a first step because I saw the extent of my worry, but I still wanted to solve the problem. I thought, I don't want to feel like this. I shouldn't be feeling like this. How can I fix this? Recently, because of the teachings, I've been uh, investigating more and inquiring into this worry habit. I had a good opportunity a few weeks ago to practice with it. It was the week after property taxes were due, and I'd paid my taxes online a few days ahead of time, and I'd even called the county tax office to make sure it was okay to pay through my bank savings account. And then about a week later after the property tax due date had passed, I was on the phone with my daughter in New York when I saw a message flash across my screen from King County property tax office. I only saw a few words, bank has rejected payment. And at that moment, I must have accidentally erased the email. I never got the opportunity to finish reading the message because I had reacted so quickly. I said a quick goodbye to my daughter and searched for the message, but it wasn't in my trash. So I called the King County Property Tax Office. In fact, I called several times because each time I heard a Verizon recording say, hang up and dial again, the number you have reached, blah, blah, blah. Before long, it was after five and I would have to wait for the next day. Well, the next morning, I had planned to join a meditation on Zoom first thing, I think it was at 8 o'clock, and then participate in my Qigong class online. Just before the meditation was going to begin, I thought to myself, 
maybe I have time for a quick call to the property tax office. I knew that was not the most wholesome way to start the day, but I felt a compulsion to fix my tax problem, and the compulsion went out. I will not bore you with the details, but I worked on the problem all morning. I missed both the meditation and the Qigong class. I ended up driving down to the King County Tax Office, and there was a Mariners game starting, so parking and traffic were an issue. I finally got home at 1. Was the problem solved? Yes. Was there a simpler and easier way? Yes. If I had not panicked and erased the email, I would have read that I had 30 days to resubmit my tax payment without penalty. I could have finished my conversation with my daughter, had a peaceful morning also. Soften and widen. Also, surrender to the moment. When we think something's going to bring us pleasure, we don't know what's really going to happen. When we think something is going to give us misery, we don't know. Here's another quick example. Yesterday, I took a break from writing this talk and went for a walk. It was my usual walk, which I have done many times, but this time I fell. I was reading a text and wasn't looking where I was going, and I was on uneven pavement. I skinned my knee, and I pulled some muscles near my ribs. I felt the pull along with a twist when I fell. But nothing was broken, so I continued my walk. But when I got home, I was definitely sore, and I took some Tylenol and rubbed some Arnica on the ribs. I felt better physically, but I noticed that my thinking was going in the direction of the future. I'm getting old. My body is falling apart. What will I do if I break a bone? And along with these thoughts, there was an emotional reaction of shakiness and anxiety. I thought, wait a minute, this is resistance. I need to soften and widen around this. I need to surrender to the arising in the moment. This is an opportunity to slow down and see what is really showing up. Maybe it's time to pause. and be with the fragility of my body in kindness and learn something from that. Maybe it's time to look at my intoxication with my health. Maybe. Pema Chodron talks about uh, a lot about the role of fear in our response to this falling apart reality that we all must face. She says things are always in transition. Sticking with uncertainty, getting the knack of relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic. This is the spiritual path. The more we perceive experience in terms of the characteristics, the more we will loosen our grip and let life live through us. But we have to pay attention. We have to pay attention to our body, our feelings, our thinking, our emotions, And be aware when we are contracting in the body, clinging to the pleasant, resisting the unpleasant, solidifying ourselves with narratives and views. We have to see through our distorted perceptions, where we sense no change in the changing, where we sense pleasure in suffering, where we assume self where there is no self, where we sense the unlovely is lovely. We have to be aware of our intoxication, what is not, with what is not true. 
and let it go. And this is a poem that I felt really captured um, this uh, response to change in, for me, a very inspiring and, um, yeah, way. It's called The Way It Is by Rosemary Watola Tromer. Over and over we break open. We break and we break and we open. For a while, we try to fix the vessel as if to be broken is bad. As if with glue and tape and a steady hand, we might bring things to perfect again, as if they were ever perfect. As if to be broken is not also perfect. As if to be open is not the path toward joy. The vase that's been shattered and cracked will never hold water. Eventually, it will leak. And at some point, perhaps, we decide that we're done with picking our flowers anyway and no longer need a place to contain them. We watch them grow just as wildflowers do, unfenced, unmanaged, blossoming only when they're ready. And my God, how beautiful they are amidst the mounting pile of shards. So we'll just take a moment to let it settle. Now we can um, take some time to talk, share with each other, um, chat. We're happy you joined us this morning if you do have to leave. And this would be the time before I put people in breakout room, breakout rooms. You can talk about... Um, how you relate to this fact of the non-solidity, changeability of everything, that you really, what happens (laughs) as we try to keep it still and how how do do you, what kind of a relationship do you have to it? I think that's what Twery talked about. She's talking about the way the Buddha helped us relate to pain and pleasure and good and bad and the worldly wins. So, yeah, talk about your relationship if you'd like. So we have an opportunity to share out in the larger group if you'd like. Would anyone like to share something that you discussed in the small group or anything else? 
Judith. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know how much I identified with your talk. Oh. Both the being, feeling limited to being a secretary or a teacher or a nurse or a housewife, right? Because I went through all of that. And also your experience with the tax office, because that's exactly how I react and have reacted to many of those bureaucratic adventures. Yeah. So I just want to let you know, it is really, really good talk. Today. Thank you, Judith. Very relevant. Yeah, sometimes you wonder if these things that are, you know, your personal experience, if they, it, it's, you know, Surprising when you find out, yeah, other people have similar experiences. We're all, all human beings. The, we've all got the interface with the bureaucracy. I mean, it's, yeah. Um, Suze. I have a question for you, uh, if mm-hmm. you have any thoughts on this, because I love how you talked about the Buddha saying that intoxication with life and health had dropped away. And I, you know, I mentioned to you when before the thing started that for me impermanence sometimes um, leads to more of a sense of joy and appreciation of life. And I could feel that it's also an intoxication. You know, it's, it's kind of it has a little bit of that grabbing quality and it's a bit of a paradox. And I wondered if because you've been working with this, if you had any thoughts about that whole thing of intoxication, such a good, such a powerful word. Yeah, I just kind of alighted on it this time. So I really haven't in myself. Let's see. Yeah, I think that. Uh, maybe it's like relief. I was just, this is just coming up right now. I'm, it's not something I've really thought about, but when I think of intoxication, I do find myself different conditions happening and suddenly I'm like, ooh, you know, and then I feel like there's a clinging there, you know, like where's the clinging? And I think that, it's a reaction, just in my experience right now, thinking about it, it's a reaction to the relief from the opposite. Like I've had a lot of um, fear or anxiety or something like that. So then I feel the opposite as an intoxication. And that really the equanimity is, you know, the ultimate place to go to. So it's just, I'm thinking that it has to do with my, um, my going from this to this, you know, and, and, um, maybe if I were less, um, uh, fearful, less anxious or some of the other things, you know, that are suffering, I would be not have the high or something that that's just my thought right at this moment. Thank you. Cause I think that, um, exploring equanimity might be part of my process for seeing that paradox of yeah. Thank you, Lauren. It, yeah, was that, a great, it was a great talk. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Um, Nikhil or um, uh, Lillian, I'm so bad with names. Sorry, Lillian. I know you, but <laughs> whoever wanted to share. Um, 
Yeah, I, I kind of like you that said, I really related to a lot of your talk. And I think one thing that stood out to me was when you talked about your, the, your worst case planning and kind of falling into that pattern of um, trying, yeah, just trying to prepare for the, you know, the worst outcome possible. And I think that's, that's something for me, which I, I that's a pattern that I, I noticed I fall into a lot. And it feels like sort of just trying to protect yourself or, you know, you feel like if you prepare for the worst and you expect the worst that, you'll, you'll be ready for it. And I think there's a lot of kind of like how you were talking about it. It's not accurate, right? It's not the reality and you're, um, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's just, it's not the truth of what, of, of the way things are or how they might be. And, um, I, I think someone in our group on this, on this topic mentions how it's some, for them, it stems from a, a desire to control things. And I think I related to that a lot where, I think for so many, so much of life that we, we are not in control of what is going to happen. And we, we want ways to feel that, feel we do have that control, whether it's trying to plan for the worst or whether it's, I think sometimes I notice that myself with like feeling guilt of like, Oh, I should have done something. If I only I could have done, done, done something differently, something would have been better and it wouldn't really have been better, but you want to feel that there's something you could have done. Um, and so, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's kind of what it comes to mind when you were talking about well, that's it. Yeah, I, I, and I think for me, it I have to really pay attention because it seems so logical to me. Like, of course you really plan so that nothing will go wrong. You know, it, of course you do that. You know, it's just kind of like that seems like a matter of course, but um, because... Um, I'm trying to look more at what really is true and what's really going on. I'm trying to catch myself with things that otherwise would go, you know, would not be in my awareness. Like, is there resistance? Like, just kind of, that really, I really liked Tawari's talk of pointing out resistance so that I would look for resistance and look for tightening, you know, am I clamping down on this? Is there resistance? What else could I do? And soften, widen, surrender. I mean, just things like that, I find, I think are something to explore. And, uh, yeah. So I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else want to share out? It's really nice to hear from people. Thank you, Lyndall. Go ahead. Um, about what you were, you know, the, the uh, talking about the intoxication and it, um, I was thinking how when I experience that kind of feeling, I, I think a lot of times it's like, when I'm something pleasant is going on, you know, and I'm all, I'm sort of all caught up in how great it, you know, I've done something and I enjoyed it and it's like how great it's going to be. And, you know, like this is going to be so wonderful. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. 
the similar with this, and it's going to be so great. And that sort of thing about, you know, I'm going to be so skillful. I'm going to be so And then um, when I actually start doing this thing that I was like, oh, this will be so wonderful, the reality is often <laughs> much more of a mixed bag, you know. <laughs> like my daydreams of you know, being really good in my piano or doing really good in my dance class. And so I get all excited about it and I'm going to do more and I'm going to do this and that. And then when I actually settle down and start working at it, it's uh, it's good, but, you know, it's much more sobering. <laughs> so it's like the actual experience of the reality kind of cures me of my intoxication. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that anticipation thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can really understand uh, that. Um, and I've had, I've had real problems with that because I've built it up so much that then I try to make it um, perfect, you know. And it just, I've had so many experiences where it's been totally the opposite. Just. And that was, I think, the thing I shared was the one where I work so hard at it that I, there's like an anxiety piece, and then it's all messed up. So, yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah, the intoxication. Well, I think that word intoxication is really um, interesting. And as I said, I, I just, was started to think about it, you know, in the last couple of days. Um, but we're very susceptible to intoxication is what I think. <laughs> well, and the Buddha uses the word dispassion. Yeah, right. Is, um, kind of a, and I know that like, I want, I want the passion and I want the intoxication. So there's this clinging Mm -hmm. to that um like um Lyndall was saying the clinging to the pleasant yeah it just uh, gets us all revved up <laughs> yeah and i know in the in the um you know sometimes one of the definitions of nirvana or nirvana nirvana is cooling and yeah cooling of the passions it's like cooling and i've always kind of been you know thought huh that's really interesting yeah yeah it's sort of getting over that feeling that we gotta have drama right yeah right. You know, because yeah I, I i that kind of sense of to feel alive I got to have a lot of drama in my life, you know, yeah. passion, despair. And all, all, all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's coming to a close here. So I wanted to make sure, thank you for everybody who shared and um, all of you for staying for the breakout. So please join me now in closing and we'll offer a meta. Connecting with our hearts we have today. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May they be healthy and strong. May they be safe and free. 
May all beings be able to care for themselves with ease and joy. Thank you, everyone. Have a good week.